Lord, we come together this afternoon not to hear the words of a man and what he thinks, but to hear the infallible, inerrant, and all-powerful words of God. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help me to communicate your word as it is without running off to the left or to the right and without getting carried away in my own thoughts. I pray you'd keep me on track to share your word just as it is for your children to hear and benefit from. And Lord, I pray that as I do that, that you by your spirit would open up ears and open up hearts to receive what it is that you're saying today. I believe that as we hear the word today, there are actually going to be people that are being spoken to prophetically in this room. I really sense that the Lord is on this word and I sense that there is going to be a word from heaven for many of you on this scripture. So I pray that the Lord would open your hearts, open your ears to receive his word today. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So we're continuing our study through Mark's gospel and I'm going to read the portion of scripture for today. It's verses 1 to 6 of chapter 6, and I'm reading from the uh, NASB translation. Jesus went out from there, that is Capernaum, and came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many listeners were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things, and what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are his sisters not here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. And he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. And he was going around the villages teaching. Thanks be to God for his word. Now the, you may have various translations that you're reading from. And pretty much all of the English translations are good on this passage of scripture. The original Greek text is pretty straightforward. Um, and there are no variants of concern. Uh, open, close brackets. So, well, I mean textual variants. Um, but it, yeah, anyway. Uh, so I do actually like the NLT. So if you're reading the NLT, I think the New Living Translation really conveys some of the, the sense of this passage, perhaps better than others. So that's worthwhile reading. Now, last time we looked together at chapter 5. I don't know how many of you are here for that, the last time I shared on, on Mark chapter 5. But that was a complete contrast from what we're reading Today, if you recall, it was the story of the woman with the issue of blood. And then this other guy called Jairus. And remember the woman with the issue of blood? She reaches out in faith and she touches the hem of Jesus' garment and she's completely healed. And then we read the story of Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue. And he comes and runs and falls at the feet of Jesus, doesn't he? And he says, Jesus, if you just come and lay hands on my daughter, she will be well. And we're reading stories at the end of chapter 5 all about faith. All about faith. The faith of this woman who's just desperate. She's reached the end of herself. She realizes that Jesus is her only hope. 
She's got no other avenues. In fact, Luke's gospel tells us that she spent all of her money. She's got nothing left. Jesus is her only hope, and she reaches out in faith. And Jairus, likewise, you know, his faith is different, but equally, his faith receives power from Jesus, and Jesus raises his daughter from the dead. Now, chapter 6 gives us a complete contrast to the end of chapter 5. Instead of hearing about faith and considering the nature of faith, as we did last time out, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that message if you, if you haven't. It's important things there. But instead of considering faith today, we're actually going to be looking at the subject of unbelief. That's what we're considering today. What is unbelief? What is the nature of unbelief? Is unbelief simply just a lack of belief? Is that what it means? Is it just a lack of belief? You know, for example, a fish will lack belief in God, right? My goldfish as a kid did not know about the atonement. Is that what we mean when we talk about unbelief? Just a simple lack of belief. Or is it more than that? Now, through this passage, brothers and sisters, we're going to consider the telltale signs and characteristics of unbelief. And we will see how the unbelief of these Nazarenes 2,000 years ago is exactly the same as the unbelief that we encounter in present day England. It's the same unbelief that you will encounter on the streets when you're telling people about Christ. It's the same unbelief that you'll encounter when you're speaking to your friends about Jesus and there's that look in their eyes that says, you're crazy. It's exactly the same. And as we look at the study of unbelief today, I also want for us to learn something. I want for us to see something also about the nature of what it means to be a Christian. I want for us to understand what it means to be a Christian. Because I think, sadly, in this day and age, many people who consider themselves Christians actually don't know what it is to be a Christian. I think that's true. I was watching a documentary just yesterday about people who consider themselves to be Christians in Nigeria. And they actually worship a woman who says that she is God. A living woman who parades around on a platform saying that she is God, that she created all things. And these people consider themselves Christians. Now, I think it's important that you and I in the 21st century are able to articulate that what it means to actually be a Christian. Isn't that important? So that we don't get deceived into believing it's actually something completely different. You see, I think if we're actually to go out onto the streets, as we do every week, and speak to people and ask them, everyday people, what is a Christian? You'll probably hear things like this. It's somebody who's religious. A Christian is somebody who's religious. Or maybe they'll say, a Christian is somebody who's just trying to be a better person. Trying to make a good go of their lives. Maybe they would say, a Christian is somebody who goes to church. That's what a Christian is. Somebody who goes to church on Sundays. Or they might tell you, well, a Christian is one of these God-botherers. It's somebody who knows about Jesus. That's what a Christian is. Somebody who knows about Jesus. But I want for us to see today, as we look in at this passage, I want for us to see this. That there's a great chasm of difference. A huge gap 
of difference between knowing about Jesus and actually knowing Jesus. There's a huge gap between those two things. A Christian is not somebody who just knows stuff about Jesus. It's not somebody who can recite his teachings to you verbatim. It's not somebody who knows historically about the life of Jesus or about his ministry. Do you know what? The demons knew all about those things better than most of you. But guess what? They're damned. So we're going to see that a Christian is not somebody who simply knows facts about Jesus. A Christian is somebody who knows Jesus personally, who has a relationship with him. They don't just believe facts about him, they believe in him. That's the difference between a Christian and an unbeliever. So let's start, shall we, in verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. Just to get a sense of where we are, I think it's always good to ground these biblical stories in their actual geographic setting, don't you? To understand where Jesus was moving. I love that. So Jesus and his disciples have been in Capernaum, which is a small town on the northwest coast of the Sea of Galilee. Okay, And they're traveling about 25 miles, that's how far it is, from Capernaum down to Nazareth, his hometown. It's 25 miles to the southeast. And what they would have done, actually, it's quite a fair walk. That's nearly the same distance as from here to Worcester. And they would think nothing of walking that. This day and age, can you imagine that? Just different times. But that was actually a well-trodden route in that day. It was a route called the Via Maris. The Via Maris. It was a trade route that actually went all the way up to the coast on the Mediterranean. And it was a route whereby they used to bring stuff in from the seas, off the ships, and they would take it up the the Jezreel Valley. Uh, And then there was a little route that went up past Nazareth and up to the Sea of Galilee and on to Damascus. And it avoided all of the cliffs and mountains. If you've been to Israel, you'll see up in Galilee, it's actually very mountainous. And there's this little pass that goes right the way up past the top of the Sea of Galilee up to Damascus. So Jesus' hometown was literally on a trade route. So this tells you something about the kind of upbringing Jesus would have had, (coughs) that he would have known and heard the sounds of the Greek language, of Latin, as well as the Jewish language. It was a real cultural melting pot in Galilee at that time. And so they travel all the way down to uh, Nazareth, and we're told then that on the Sabbath day, that is Saturday for the Jews, Jesus went into the synagogue and he begins to teach. Now Luke's gospel actually records some of what Jesus taught. As you'll know in your four gospels, there are slightly different renderings of the same events. So we find out certain hidden details in the gospel of Luke that we don't find out in the gospel of Mark. So Luke tells us that uh, this was the custom of Jesus to teach in synagogues. It was something that he did regularly and habitually. He'd go into the synagogues and he would teach. The synagogues, why would, you, why would that be a good place to teach? Well, I think we have to understand what synagogues were. And because we don't really have any in this country anymore, I think we, we don't really understand why Jesus would do that and why the Apostle Paul would go and teach in, in synagogues. But the reason was was that these were places where people came together. That's literally what the word synagogue means in Greek. It's like gathering place. 
to gather together. And they would come together, they would hear the scriptures read, and then they would share their thoughts about that. It was a place where debates happened, where lively conversations happened. It was a place where ideas were shared. And so it was really the perfect place for Jesus to go and to, for Paul to go and to share the gospel. A place where ideas were shared. It wasn't like church. It wasn't a service as such. And there wasn't a pastor and a leadership team. It wasn't like this. It, it was an open space for conversation. So I, I like to think, is there a place like that now in 21st century Western Europe? Is there a place where we come together to share ideas? Well, certainly it, it, it doesn't seem like there is a place exactly like the synagogue in, in this day and age. However, I think there is one place where lots of views and ideas get shared, and that's social media right? That's definitely a place where we come together and lots of ideas are shared. Now, so much as I find social media stressful at times, I think, to be honest, it's as good a place as any to be sharing the gospel in this day and age. And that's kind of why I hang in there by my fingertips, because I recognize that, you know, if there's a marketplace of ideas, shouldn't Christians have a place in it? Shouldn't we be there sharing the gospel if everyone else is sharing other stuff? So I think it's actually a useful tool, but there you go. So Jesus is there and, and Luke tells us some of what he taught. It says that he opened up Isaiah and he taught from the 61st chapter of Isaiah. Mark doesn't mention this, but that's the passage that says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Luke also records for us that after Jesus shared these words, he sat down and he said, today these scriptures are fulfilled in your hearing. We aren't told more detail by Mark about what else Jesus may have taught, but we are told that people were amazed. We're told that they were astonished at Jesus' wisdom, just as they had been in Capernaum. Do you remember earlier on in the Gospel of Mark and he taught in the synagogue and they were amazed at the teaching and the same thing happens in Nazareth. And they also say, how are such mighty works done by his hands? So perhaps they saw Jesus actually healing sick people in Nazareth. The, the text does tell us that he laid hands on some and he healed them. And so these people in Nazareth they have seen both with their eyes and they have heard with their ears that this guy Jesus is ministering in the power of God. He's ministering in significant power. He is certainly somebody that they ought to honor. They've got the witness of their eyes. They've got the witness of their ears. And yet, listen to their response. This is what I like about the NLT. Is it says, is this not just the addition of the word just? It's not just the carpenter whereas we've got it in the SV isn't this not the carpenter the son of Mary the brother of James and Joseph Judas and Simon and are not his sisters here with us they took offense at him they took offense at him instead of believing their eyes and believing their ears they take offense at Jesus they disregard their senses and they put aside what they've just witnessed. They put that aside. 
Why did they do that? If Jesus was right here, right now, healing people, teaching with wisdom that just bent your mind, why would you then get offended at that? What would cause you to do that? What caused these people to get offended at Jesus was this. It was their familiarity with him. It was their familiarity with Jesus. They knew his family. They had seen him grow up. How many of you have had people who've watched you grow up and all the embarrassing stuff you used to do and the weird haircuts you used to have and then you have to grow up in that community? I, I, I know this. There are people here that have known me since I was a baby. And here I am teaching and preaching and they've seen me wear some ridiculous stuff. To be fair, I'll probably look 10 years later and I'll think this is ridiculous. But it's difficult and people form an opinion of you and it's very difficult sometimes to shake that. And these people had opinions about Jesus that had been set years and years and years ago. And it was their familiarity that caused them to blind themselves to what they were seeing now. I want to tell you that familiarity is dangerous. Familiarity with Jesus and with the Christian faith can actually be a very dangerous thing if we simply stop there. There's the old saying, isn't there? Familiarity breeds what? Breeds contempt. They allowed their familiarity with Jesus' story to get in the way of actually knowing him. And this is something that people do all the time. It's something that I see all the time on the streets when I talk with people about Jesus, they say things like, yeah, I, I used to go to church, actually. I was raised in church. I went to a Christian school. And I know what that's all about. Have you ever heard that before? It's, it's a conversation I've had way too many times to remember. Maybe over a few beers with some old uni mates. Yeah, I remember. My mum is a Christian. And so there's that level of familiarity that kind of inoculates them to actually knowing Christ. They don't really know Jesus. They know stuff about him. They don't really know the gospel. They think they know. And they've decided already that they know enough. They've decided that. They've made the choice. I know enough. I don't need to know anymore. Just like the people did at Nazareth. You know what that is? That's intellectual pride. Intellectual pride. This is the first characteristic of unbelief. Pride. Pride. Have you got preconceived notions of Jesus that you are unwilling to let go no matter what Jesus does? No matter what new evidence comes to light about the nature, character, and work of Jesus, have you decided you know enough? That's unbelief. That's unbelief. Have you decided you already know what the gospel is? I don't need to know. I don't need somebody to preach it to me. I don't need for you to open up your Bible and tell me. I already know. Pride. The root of unbelief. It's one of the core characteristics. I want you to see this right now. And I'm going to show you today, this sort of unbelief is right behind all that we see in Western culture today. Writ large behind secular culture is the spirit of unbelief. Behind all of it. Unbelief will always, brothers and sisters, always look down on faith. Always. It always thinks it knows better. Now, I want, I want to take a moment just to say this in case people are wondering, why am I contrasting unbelief with faith and not unbelief with belief, right? Shouldn't I contrast unbelief with belief? 
Well, in Greek, the word for unbelief is literally the same word that we have for faith with an ah in front of it. And you know, in our language, in English, we have moral and amoral. Moral means somebody who lives according to moral principles. And what does amoral mean? The complete opposite, right? So unbelief is literally the diametric opposite of faith. It's the opposite of faith. That's the way the Bible treats it. And so just as faith in Jesus, as we learned last time out, just as faith is a positive and demonstrative receiving of Christ, just as faith is that, so unbelief is also a positive and demonstrative, as if we can see it, right? It's got stuff, we can see what unbelief is, it's got an action. Unbelief is a positive and demonstrative rejection of Christ. Unbelief is always prideful. It always claims it's got facts on its side. That's what unbelief does. It's always got reasons. It always thinks it's got knowledge. It's got reasons to believe in what it believes. And it will always treat faith as irrational, silly, and unfounded. And nothing has changed, brothers and sisters. Nothing has changed. I think so many of us think that it has because we've got iPads and phones and TV and and all of that. And the fact is that the Bible treats the same issues today as it did 2,000 years ago. Nothing has changed. Unbelief is the same today as it was then. It's always got that pride, that intellectual superiority. We know better. Listen to this quote from the late Christopher Hitchens, who was an atheist debater. He said this, Jesus is just Santa Claus for adults. You hear that? The pride, the scorn, refusing to take things seriously. I want to say this, and this is a sobering thought, but a lot of people in this world today, a lot of people have just enough knowledge about Jesus to damn them. A lot of people sat in churches all over this country have got just enough knowledge about Jesus to send them to hell. Isn't that a sobering thought? Why? Knowledge of Christ, apart from faith in Christ, sends you to hell. There are demons who are more theologically accurate than most Christians in this world, and they aren't going to be in heaven. It isn't knowledge about Jesus that saves us, it's faith in Jesus. I think it's interesting as well that they don't just say, isn't this the carpenter? Notice this, that they say, isn't this the son of Mary? Did you catch that? Isn't this the son of Mary? They don't call him the son of Joseph. There's a few things we can tell about that. Either Joseph's dead by this point, and that's quite possible, because we read earlier in the Gospel of Mark, didn't we, that Jesus' family came to Capernaum, and they tried to kind of arrest him and take him back with them because they thought he'd lost his mind and Joseph wasn't there either so it's quite possible Joseph's dead but even if he was dead it was still Jewish custom at that time to call sons by their father's name so it still would have been the right thing to call him the son of Joseph so why did they call him the son of Mary they called him the son of Mary as a low blow it's an insult it's basically saying look we don't know who your dad is we don't know 
Effectively, they're calling him illegitimate. It's an insult. And they say, listen, we know his brothers. We know his sisters. They're here with us. Just to pause for a moment and say this also. What does this prove? It proves that Mary and Joseph had other children after Jesus. Mary did not remain a virgin her whole life as the Roman Catholic Church teaches. And in fact, the Roman Catholic Church through the, the Council of Trent anathematizes anybody that says Mary had other children. To anathematize somebody is to, to damn them to hell. And so we can see that the Roman Catholic Church is in error and is running contrary to scripture. Mary did have other children with Joseph. Now, I want, I want for us to just notice a few things here. If there's one thing that Jesus is really at pains to show us, he really wants for us to know, is this. Not everyone who claims to know Jesus really does know him. Not everybody who claims to know him really does know him. You see, these people knew things about Jesus. They actually knew a lot more detail about Jesus than you or I in terms of his upbringing will ever know, right? They'd seen him grow up. They knew a lot about him, but they didn't truly know him. This is a sobering thought again. We know from Matthew chapter 7, if you've read it before, Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, workers of of iniquity or, or lawlessness. It's possible, guys. It's really quite possible to have really accurate knowledge about Jesus and still not have a saving knowledge of him. You could know all the finer points of the doctrine of the atonement, of the doctrine of the incarnation. You could have your theology locked down. You could be a mega brain and still miss Jesus in the process. I've been taught theology by people that hate the gospel, but they know far more than I do about doctrine. Isn't that shocking? But it's possible. You could be a mega church pastor, somebody who's on God TV on the regular, somebody who's casting out demons, healing the sick, huge ministry, influence, power. Every Sunday you're healing, you're prophesying in his name. But guess what? Jesus doesn't know them. And they don't know him. The only knowledge that really counts at the end of the day about Jesus is the knowledge that you have here in your heart. R.C. Sproul, the late theologian, said this, it is possible to have head knowledge about Jesus without it ever reaching your heart. But it's impossible for it to get to your heart without being in your head first. What we don't want, even though I'm telling you all this, that it's possible to know stuff without actually knowing him, What we don't want is brainless Christianity. Soulish, emotional Christianity that doesn't really know him either. That ends up doing what those Christians, quote unquote, did that I was watching about yesterday. Ending up worshipping a person who calls himself God. We don't need brainless Christianity either. But we don't want only head knowledge. We need 
faith. We need knowledge of Christ that is faith, that rests in him. Jesus can be to us just an object of study, just something that we know about. Or he can be to us just a means to an end, a way to get what we really want. What we want is a living faith, a faith that transforms our life, transforms the way we live, the way we think, the way we act. And we see in the way that these people from Nazareth insult Jesus, we see a second characteristic of unbelief. Unbelief cannot help but respond to Christianity with scorn and derision. It can't help itself. I always find that interesting. I would have conversations with atheists, debates with atheists, who would claim to be intellectuals, cool, calm, collected, making their decisions based on reason, not emotion. You start debating Christianity with them and the veil comes off and they get angry. Isn't that interesting? You can see that today in the media, can't you? The way that the secular media treats various religions, Islam, Buddhism, Sikhism, Hinduism, often treated as valid religions. Not the subject of scorn or joking, but Christianity, oh, that's fair game. That's fair game. We can mock that as much as we like. At Easter, we'll put out on TV some documentary about Jesus being a homosexual. That's fine. You can see the nature of unbelief behind the secular media today. Spirit of unbelief will always claim to be neutral and objective and based on reason, but actually it's not. It's completely biased. And that's what we're seeing in the West right now because behind that, that whole cool persona is unbelief. The spirit of unbelief. I want to say that in these times, to follow Jesus, truly to follow Jesus, is to wave goodbye to honor from men. Is to let go of that. We have to stop desperately needing the world to like us and applaud us and approve us. That doesn't mean we go out and be jerks, but we have to let go of the approval of mankind. Finally, it says that Jesus couldn't do any mighty work there. He couldn't. That's how Mark records it. He could do no mighty work there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. Well, that's, that's pretty miraculous, isn't it? That he says he could do no mighty work, but he, he healed these people. Well, that's, that's, that's still supernatural. And that he marveled at their unbelief. I think this tells us two things, as I draw to a close. It tells us two things really clearly. Firstly, the fact that Mark tells us that Jesus could do no mighty work there, what this tells us is that you can trust your Bible. You can trust your Bible, that it's telling the truth, that it's telling an accurate rendering of what actually happened. There's something that historians call the criterion of embarrassment. When they're looking at an ancient text and they're trying to figure out, is this true or is this not? They have this thing called the criterion of embarrassment. That is, that is if a historical text includes something that's potentially embarrassing for the story it's telling 
or that seems to kind of undermine what it's wanting to get across, then that's actually good evidence that it's telling the truth. You see, if this book, the book of Mark, as critics and atheists will say, if this book, this, this gospel of Mark, was actually written 200 years later, after Jesus died, by followers of Jesus, would they really write that Jesus couldn't do a mighty work? That would be the first thing to go. The same is true of the fact that it was women that first discovered the empty tomb. If that gospel account was written 200 years later, that's getting airbrushed out of there. Because in the second century AD, the testimony of women counted for nothing. So this goes again on the pile of evidence to suggest that the New Testament, the New Testament documents, the Gospels, are historically reliable documents. Secondly, though we know that, D, that Jesus did actually heal people in Nazareth, we're told he couldn't do a mighty work there because of their unbelief. So just as the faith of Jairus and the faith of the woman with the issue of blood drew mighty power from Jesus in healing and raising from the dead, so we see the opposite of that happening here, that unbelief actually quenched the power of Jesus. Now, we addressed this last time. There are examples in the New Testament of Jesus healing people who didn't even know him. They didn't know him. So it's true that Jesus can move even when the faith is tiny, right? Even when they didn't know him, he healed the guy at the pool of Bethesda in John 5. However, it's also true that people who spend their life in unbelief, who go to the grave in unbelief, who spend their whole life ridiculing Christ, ridiculing the Christian gospel, hating God, it's impossible for them to receive from Christ anything but judgment on that day. What this is telling us is that the ultimate fruit, the ultimate outcome, what unbelief really does receive from Christ is no good thing. Unbelief does not receive the blessings of Christ. And there are many people today that seem to believe that unbelief will yield the power of Christ, that it will see people saved. There are people all over the world in churches that believe in universalism, that every single person will be saved. There'll be a second chance after we all die. God will say, here you go, here's another chance. Do you want to believe in me now? Not going to happen, sadly. <laughs> Perhaps if it was our way, it wouldn't be like that. But we're not God, we're not holy. We're not perfect. We're not just. Only faith, the open hand of faith with nothing in it, only faith receives the power of Christ. And as I finish, I, I want to say this, because this has been quite a heavy subject to talk about, this subject of unbelief. But there is hope. There's hope for unbelief. And that is that true saving faith is possible. It's possible. It's possible for somebody so crooked and bent and screwed up in unbelief to actually have a complete transformation of heart and come to faith. It's possible. We look at the stories of Paul in the New Testament. We look at many modern day stories of people coming to Christ who just seemed a lost cause. It is possible 
for even those in the darkest recesses of unbelief to come to faith in Christ. Amen? We have to believe this, and it's true. However, it doesn't come about through more evidence. You don't turn somebody from unbelief to faith by just giving them more facts. In fact, Romans 1, if you've read Romans 1, it, it's an amazing passage. But it talks about the sinfulness of mankind. And it says, you know what we do naturally as humans? It says that we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So naturally, without the intervention of God, guess what the unbeliever does? The unbeliever is going to look at any evidence for God and is going to go, great, I'll take that and I'll stuff that into my own worldview. And I'll refuse to believe what it tells me. Isn't that just what the people in Nazareth do? They see him healing people. They hear him preaching. The wisdom is amazing. And they go, do you know what I'm going to do with that knowledge? I'm going to shove that down. I'm going to ignore it. And I'm going to choose to trust my own beliefs against my better judgment. So fresh information, facts, evidence, even though the atheist, the unbeliever tells you that's what they need, right? They don't believe in God because there's not enough evidence. Oh, how intelligent. Oh, it's just, he's too clever to come to church. He's figured it all out. How many times I've heard that? No. You're not dealing with somebody who's rational. You're dealing with somebody who's in unbelief. Therefore, it doesn't matter how much information, evidence, facts you give them. All they're going to do, apart from God's intervention, is find a way to re-explain those facts in a way that comports with their worldview. The only hope for unbelief is the grace of God. You must be born again. John 3, 3. You must be born again. God will come and give you a new heart. A heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. That responds to Him. That wants to please Him. That wants to know Him. That's our hope today for unbelief in this nation. It's the grace of God. And yes, God can use evidence as part of that salvation. He could use facts, but unless there is a new heart, unless there is that new life in somebody, they aren't going to hear it. And so that's why we pray for unbelievers. You understand? That's why we pray to God that people might be saved, because we recognize it's out of our power, it's out of our hands, it's out of their hands. Only grace can save. I wonder today, it says that Jesus was amazed at their unbelief. It also tells us elsewhere in the Gospels that Jesus was amazed at the faith of the centurion. Jesus was amazed by faith and by unbelief. I wonder if he was here today. Would he marvel? Would he marvel at our faith? Would he wonder at it? I hope that he would. And even as Christians, I know many of us here today, most of us here indeed probably are Christians. Even for us, there are still recesses of our hearts that are caught in a level of unbelief. There are still false beliefs that we might have that are formed on our past experiences. Perhaps we never got that answer to prayer that we were really hoping for. And so we became calloused in that area of our hearts and became unbelieving. Jesus will never do that for me because he didn't do that for me in the past. Do you understand what I'm saying? And I want today to give an opportunity. Yes, for those of you who 
perhaps don't know Jesus, but equally for those of you who do, I want to give an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to come and to shine a light on those places and to give us life in those areas where perhaps we've shut Jesus out because we've got prior knowledge, we've got prior experience of disappointment. I think many Christians today are living in a place of disappointment with Jesus. We're disappointed at the way life turned out. We're disappointed that we didn't get that answer to prayer or we didn't get that healing or we didn't get the job that we were asking for. And we can very easily become in that, you know, that place of unbelief in, in prayer. We, we don't want to go there in prayer. We don't want to ask for healing because we don't want to get hurt again. But I want for us to be encouraged. I want for us to be encouraged because just as unbelief in the Nazarenes quenched the spirit, just so faith, even the tiniest bit of faith, even Jairus' faith where he needed to be encouraged by Jesus, he started wavering, even that faith draws a strong saviour. Even that faith draws Christ. And wherever he is, there's breakthrough. So I want for us to stand and I actually, if I could have a few of the wider leadership team, if you lead a home group or if Ruth as well, if you could just come to the side here behind this speaker. Mum, if you're able as well, Bucky. Um, I'll have the worship team up as well. Yeah. Um, and um, I want to open up an opportunity just for those of you who need a fresh dose of hope today, maybe some of that rang true with you. You know there's something in your life where you've kind of stopped hoping. You've, you've stopped believing in Jesus in that one area of your life. And you know you need to get it dealt with. Now is a great opportunity. And these guys would be more than happy to pray with you if you'd like that. So I'm going to hand to Ruth in a moment, but I just want to pray. And if that's you, don't feel scared. They won't bite. I've tested them, know them, trust them, apart from Dean. I would encourage you to, to just do that, to, to come and open up and, and receive healing in that area today. So let's, let's just pray. Let's open up to the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you today that there is an answer for unbelief. And that's grace. And Lord, we, we recognize that many of us here today, even as Christians, perhaps Christians for a long time, have experienced things in our past that have caused us to lock up and stop believing you in certain areas. And Lord, we pray right now that the Holy Spirit would just come into this place and just begin to work on our hearts to bring fresh hope this afternoon into those areas where we lack it. Yeah, I sense that um, maybe this is wrong, but I, I did get the picture that there was somebody who, when they were younger, was really, really praying in hope for a family member who was very sick, and they were praying for them not to pass away and they did, and they did pass away. And it was really, really painful for you. And since then, you've found it difficult every time you're encouraged to pray for somebody sick. You've found it really hard to do it because you just don't want to get hurt again. And if that's you, then I just sense that there's just such grace for you this afternoon. I really sense that God just wants to bring healing there. 
He wants to, to just meet you in that place again and re-encourage you in the area of healing and just say, you know, yes, maybe what you, didn't, what you wanted didn't happen back then. But he wants to reignite hope in you for the future and he wants to heal the wounds of the past. I really sense that. So if that's you, please do um, come and, and receive prayer. I'm going to pass this to Ruth now. I think she's got a word as well. You know, earlier on when we were singing um, about the goodness of God, um, the last few times we've sang it, I really feel that there's people believing that they really want to sing that song, but they haven't felt the goodness following them their whole life. And it's just to say that he has followed you your whole life. He has pursued you your whole life. And although the things have happened that are out of our control, they are not out of his control. So just when that song, The Goodness of God, has followed you, just know and believe that God's goodness has always been there for you and is always there for you. Amen.